Chapters 1 through 6 of the Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, Volume 1. Translated by John Eddington Simons. Chapters 1 to 6. 1. All men of whatsoever quality they be, who have done anything of excellence, or which may properly resemble excellence, ought, if they are persons of truth and honesty, to describe their life with their own hand. But they ought not to attempt so fine an enterprise till they have passed the age of forty. This duty occurs to my own mind, now that I am travelling beyond the term of fifty-eight years, and am in Florence, the city of my birth. Many untoward things can I remember, such as happen to all who live upon our earth, and from those adversities I am now more free than at any previous period of my career. Nay, it seems to me, that I enjoy greater content of soul and health of body than ever I did in bygone years. I can also bring to mind some pleasant goods and some inestimable evils, which, when I turn my thoughts backward, strike terror in me, and astonishment that I should have reached this age of fifty-eight, wherein, thanks be to God, I am still travelling prosperously forward. 2. It is true that men who have laboured with some show of excellence have already given knowledge of themselves to the world, and this alone ought to suffice them. I mean the fact that they have proved their manhood and achieved renown. Yet one must needs live like others, and so in a work like this there will always be found occasion for natural bragging, which is of diverse kinds, and the first is that a man should let others know he draws his lineage from persons of worse and most ancient origin. I am called Benvenuto Cellini, son of Maestro Giovanni, son of Andrea, son of Cristofano Cellini. My mother was Madonna Elisabetta, daughter to Stefano Granacci, both parents citizens of Florence. It is found written in chronicles made by our ancestors of Florence, men of old time and of credibility, even as Giovanni Villani writes, that the city of Florence was evidently built in imitation of the fair city of Rome, and certain remnants of the Colosseum and the Baths can yet be traced. These things are near Santa Croce, the capital was where is now the old market. The rotonda is entire, which was made for the temple of Mars, and is now dedicated to our St. John. That thus as was, can very well be seen, and cannot be denied. But the said buildings are much smaller than those of Rome. He who caused them to be built, they say, was Julius Caesar, in concert with some noble Romans, who, when Fiesole had been stormed and taken, raised a city in this place, and each of them took in hand to erect one of these notable edifices. Julius Caesar had among his captains a man of highest rank and valor, who was called Fiorini of Cellino, which is a village about two miles distant from Montefiascone. Now this Fiorino took up his quarters under the hill of Fiesole, on the ground where Florence now stands, in order to be near the river Arno, and for the convenience of the troops. 
all those soldiers and others who had to do with the said captain used then to say let us go to fiorenze as well because they said captain was called fiorino as also because the place he had chosen for his quarters was by nature very rich in flowers upon the foundation of the city therefore since this name struck julius caesar as being fair and apt and given by circumstance and seeing furthermore the flowers themselves bring good augury he appointed the name of florence for the town he wished besides to pay his valiant captain this compliment and he loved him all the more for having drawn him from a very humble place and for the reason that so excellent a man was a creature of his own the names that learned inventors and investigators of such etymologies adduce as that florence is flowing at the arno cannot hold seeing that rome is flowing at the tiber ferrara is flowing at the po lyons is flowing at the saone paris is flowing at the seine and yet the names of all these towns are different and have come to them by other ways thus then we find and thus we believe that we are descended from a man of worth furthermore we find that there are cellinis of our stock in ravenna that most ancient town of italy where too are plenty of gentle folk in pisa also there are some and i have discovered them in many parts of christendom and in this state also the breed exists men devoted to the profession of arms for not many years ago a young man called luca cellini a beardless youth fought with a soldier of experience and a most valorous man named francesco da vicorati who had frequently fought before in single combat this luca by his own valour with sword in hand overcame and slew him with such bravery and stoutness that he moved the folk to wonder who were expecting quite the contrary issue so that i glory in tracing my descent from men of valour as for the trifling honours which i have gained for my house under the well-known conditions of our present ways of living and by means of my art albeit the same are matters of no great moment i will relate these in their proper time and place taking much more pride in having been born humble and having laid some honourable foundation for my family than if i had been born of great lineage and had stained or overclouded that by my base qualities so then i will make a beginning by saying how it pleased god i should be born chapter three my ancestors dwelt in wald ambra where they owned large estates and lived like little lords in retirement however on account of the then contending factions they were all men devoted to arms and of notable bravery in that time one of their sons the younger who was called cristofano roused a great void with certain of their friends and neighbours now the heads of the families on both sides took part in it and the fire kindled seemed to them so threatening that their houses were like to perish utterly the elders upon this consideration in concert with my own ancestors removed cristofano and the other youth with whom he quarrelled began was also sent away they sent their young man to siena our folks sent cristofano to florence and there they bought for him a little house in via chiara close to the convent of saint orsola and they also purchased for him some very good property near the ponte arifredi the said cristofano took wife in florence and had sons and daughters 
and when all the daughters had been portioned off, the sons, after their father's death, divided what remained. The house in Viachiara, with some other trifles, fell to the share of one of the said sons, who had the name of Andrea. He also took wife, and had four male children. The first was called Girolamo, the second Bartolomeo, the third Giovanni, who was afterwards my father, and the fourth Francesco. This Andrea Cellini was very well versed in architecture, and it was then practised, and lived by it as his trade. Giovanni, who was my father, paid more attention to it than any of the other brothers, and since Vitruvius says, amongst other things, that one who wishes to practise the art well must have something of music and good drawing. Giovanni, when he had mastered drawing, began to turn his mind to music, and together with the theory learned to play most excellent on the viol and the flute, and being a person of studious habits, he left his home but seldom. They had four neighbor, in the same house a man, called Stefano Granacci, who had several daughters, all of them of remarkable beauty. As it pleased God, Giovanni noticed one of these girls, who was named Elisabetta, and she found such favor with him, that he asked her in marriage. The fathers of both of them being well acquainted through their close neighborhood, it was easy to make this match up and each thought that he had very well arranged his affairs. First of all, the two good old men agreed upon the marriage. Then they began to discuss the dowry, which led to a certain amount of friendly difference. For Andrea said to Stefano, My son Giovanni is the stoutest youth of Florence, and of all Italy to boot, and if I had wanted earlier to have him married, I could have procured one of the largest dowries which folk of our rank get in Florence. Whereupon Stefano answered, You have a thousand reasons on your side, but here am I with five daughters and as many sons, and when my reckoning is made, this is as much as I can possibly afford. Giovanni, who had been listening a while unseen by them, suddenly broke in and said, Oh, my father, I have sought and loved that girl and not their money. Ill luck to those who seek to fill their pockets by the dowry of their wife. As you have boasted that I am a fellow of such parts, do you not think that I shall be able to provide for my wife, and satisfy her needs, even if I receive something short of the portion you would like to get? Now I must make you understand that the woman is mine, and you may take the dowry for yourself. At this Andrea Cellini, who was a man of rather awkward temper, grew a trifle angry. But after a few days Giovanni took his wife, and never asked for other portion with her. They enjoyed their youth and wedded love through eighteen years, always greatly desiring to be blessed with children. At the end of this time, Giovanni's wife miscarried of two boys through the unskillfulness of the doctors. Later on she was again with child, and gave birth to a girl, whom they called Cosa, after the mother of my father. At the end of two years she was once more with child, and inasmuch as those longings to which pregnant women are subject, and to which they pay much attention, were now exactly the same as those of her former pregnancy, they made their minds up that she would give birth to a female as before, and agreed to call the child Reparata, after the mother of my mother. 
it happened that she was delivered on a night of all saints following the feast day at half past four precisely in the year fifteen o o the midwife who knew that they were expecting a girl after she had washed the baby and wrapped it in the fairest white linen came softly to my father giovanni and said i am bringing you a fine present such as you did not anticipate my father who was a true philosopher was walking up and down and answered what god gives me is always dear to me and when he opened the swaddling clothes he saw with his own eyes the unexpected male child joining together the palms of his old hands he raised them with his eyes to god and said lord i thank thee with my whole heart this gift is very dear to me let him be welcome all the persons who were there asked him joyfully what name the child should bear giovanni would make no other answer then let him be welcome benvenuto and so they resolved and this name was given me at holy baptism and by it i still am living with the grace of god chapter four andrea cellini was yet alive when i was about three years old and he had passed his hundreds one day they had been altering a certain conduit pertaining to a cistern and there issued from it a great scorpion and perceived by them which crept down from the cistern to the ground and slank away beneath the bench i saw it and ran up to it and laid my hands upon it it was so big that when i had it in my little hands it put out its tail on one side and on the other thrust forth both its mouths they relate that i ran in high joy to my grandfather crying out look grandpapa at my pretty little crab when he recognized that the creature was a scorpion he was on the point of falling dead for the great fear he had an anxiety about me he coaxed and entreated me to give it him but the more he begged the tighter i clasped it crying and saying i would not give it to any one my father who was also in the house ran up when he heard my screams and in his stupefaction could not think how to prevent the venomous animal from killing me just then his eyes chanced to fall upon a pair of scissors and so while soothing and caressing me he cut its tail and mouth off afterwards when the great peril had been thus averted he took the occurrence for a good augury when i was about five years old my father happened to be in a basement chamber of our house where they had been washing and where a good fire of oak logs was still burning he had a while in his hand and was playing and singing alone beside the fire the weather was very cold happening to look into the fire he spied in the middle of those most burning flames a little creature like a lizard which was sporting in the core of the intensest coals becoming instantly aware of what the thing was he had my sister and me called and pointing it out to us children gave me a great box on the ears which caused me to howl and weep with all my might then he pacified me good-humouredly and spoke as follows my dear little boy i am not striking you for any wrongs that you have done but only to make you remember that that lizard which you see in the fire is a salamander a creature which has never been seen before by any one of whom we have credible information so saying he kissed me and gave me some pieces of money chapter five my father began teaching me to play upon the flute and sing by note 
By notwithstanding, I was of that tender age, when little children are wont to take pastime and whistles and touch toys, I had an inexpressible dislike for it, and played and sang only to obey him. My father in those times fashioned wonderful organs with pipes of wood, spinets, the fairest and most excellent, which then could be seen, vials and lutes and harps, of the most beautiful and perfect construction. He was an engineer, and had marvellous skill in making instruments for lowering bridges, and for working mills, and other machines of that sort. In ivory he was the first who wrought really well. But after he had fallen in love with the woman who was destined to become my mother, perhaps what brought them together was that little flute, to which indeed he paid more attention than was proper. He was entreated by the fifers of the seigneury to play in their company. Accordingly, he did so for some time to amuse himself, until by constant importunity they induced him to become a member of their band. Lorenzo de' Medici and Pietro his son, who had a great liking for him, perceived later on that he was devoting himself wholly to the fife, and was neglecting his fine engineering talent and his beautiful art. So they had him removed from that post. My father took this very ill, and it seemed to him that they had done him a great despite. Yet he immediately resumed his art, and fashioned a mirror, about a cubit in diameter, out of bone and ivory, with figures and foliage of great finish and grand design. The mirror was in the form of a wheel. In the middle was the looking-glass. Around it were seven circular pieces, on which were the seven virtues, carved and joined of ivory and black bone. The whole mirror, together with the virtues, was placed in equilibrium, so that when the wheel turned, all the virtues moved, and they had weights at their feet to keep them upright. Possessing some acquaintance with the Latin tongue, he put a legend in Latin round his looking-glass, to this effect. With hersoever the wheel of fortune turns, virtue stands firm upon her feet. Rotasum, semper quoquome verto stat virtus. A little while after this, he obtained his place again among the fifers. Although some of these things happened before I was born, my familiarity with them has moved me to set them down here. In those days the musicians of the seigneury were all of them members of the most honorable trades, and some of them belonged to the greater guilds of silk and wool, and that was the reason why my father did not disdain to follow this profession, and his chief desire with regard to me was always that I should become a great performer on the flute. I, for my part, felt never more discontented than when he chose to talk to me about this scheme, and to tell me that, if I liked, he discerned in me such aptitudes that I might become the best man in the world. CHAPTER Six, As I have said, my father was the devoted servant and attached friend of the house of Medici, and when Piero was banished, he entrusted him with many affairs of the greatest possible importance. Afterwards, when the magnificent Piero Soderini was elected, and my father continued in his office of musician, Soderini, perceiving his wonderful talent, began to employ him in many matters of great importance as an engineer. So long as Soderini remained in Florence, he showed the utmost good will to my father, and in those days, I being still of tender age, 
my father had me carried, and made me perform upon the flute. I used to play treble in concert with the musicians of the palace before the seigneury, following my notes, and a beadle used to carry me upon his shoulders. The gonfalonier, that is, Sonderini, whom I have already mentioned, took much pleasure in making me chatter, and gave me comfits, and was wont to say to my father, Maestro Giovanni, besides music, teach the boy those other arts which do you so much honor. To which my father answered, I do not wish him to practice any art but playing and composing, for in this profession I hope to make him the greatest man of the world, if God prolongs his life. To these words one of the old conciliars make answer, Ah, Maestro Giovanni, do what the gonfalonier tells you, for why should he never become anything more than a good musician? Thus some time passed, until the Medici returned. When they arrived, the cardinal, who afterwards became Pope Leo, received my father very kindly. During their exile, the scutcheons which were on the palace of the Medici had had their balls erased, and the great red cross painted over them, which was the bearing of the commune. Accordingly, as soon as they returned, the red cross was scratched out, and on the scutcheon the red balls and the golden field were painted in again, and finished with great beauty. My father, who possessed a simple vein of poetry, instilled in him by nature, together with a certain touch of prophecy, which was doubtless a divine gift in him, wrote these four verses under the said arms of the Medici, when they were uncovered to the view. These arms, which have so long from sight been led, Beneath the holy cross, that symbol meek, Now lift their glorious clad face, and seek, With Peter's sacred cloak to be arrayed. This epigram was read by all Florence. A few days afterwards Pope Julius II died. The Cardinal de' Medici went to Rome, And was elected Pope against the expectation of everybody. He reigned as Leo X, that generous and great soul. My father sent him his four prophetic verses. The Pope sent to tell him to come to Rome, for this would be to his advantage. But he had no will to go, and so, in lieu of reward, his place in the palace was taken from him by Jacopo Salviati, upon that man's election as gonfalonier. This was the reason why I commenced Goldsmith, after which I spent part of my time in learning that art, and part in playing much against my will. End of chapters 1 through 6